Welcome back to The Reset Rebel with me, Joe Yule. And this seems to be the month of the year where we all have a little bit of extra time in our hands for a spot of navel-gazing, hibernating, self-reflection, pondering, planning. And most people I know are taking some time out to just, you know, take a slow start to the year or attempt to get this year off to a flyer. And one of the things I think that really helps with all of that is reading. Last week, we spoke to author Susie Pearl about the art of creativity and how to pop ourselves back on our perch after Christmas and get the show on the road and stay positive so that we can create. And by creating, we feel more positive and in our flow and in turn that kind of like fires up this momentum and I find you know I find that with creating this series every time I hit publish I feel a great sense of completion and almost a mild elation that I actually did what I said I was going to do and I followed through on my intentions to create and finish something and I think you know with creative tasks like writing books or making music or painting or knitting or anything that takes us away from the drudgery or mundanity of everyday life we start and then we drift and then we have the very best of intentions and that we, you know, when we begin everything we do, but often we never finish. So I think, you know, it really is with great pleasure to have today's guest with me today, a man who has not just finished writing a book called Pine Tree Island, um, but he's also had it published by the Barbary Press right here on the island. Uh, The creator of that beautiful press is none other than Mr. Martin Davis, who we caught up with on this series in episode number 88. But it has been published, even though there seemed to be a distinct lack of paper right before Christmas, um, which we're going to talk about shortly. Um, But, you know, it is no mean feat to actually complete something. And I think first and foremost, Ben Dunwell, um, a huge congratulations on the completion and publication of your very first book. Thank you very much. I mean, before we get into um, talking about the book, I mean, I I could do a very bad job of giving it a little synopsis. Um, But I think, you know, it'd be really great to begin this for our listeners to get a little sense of the storyline, you know, or as much as you're willing to give away. Um, But just, you know, so those out there maybe wishing to buy it or hearing it for the first time just through this episode, um, you know, so they can get a real feel for it. So would you be so kind? I'd love to. So listen, this is kind of what you'd call historical fiction. But I see it much more as a sort of adventure and discovery novel. Um, And it's the story of the first settlers coming to this island, to Ibiza. Um, And so we have to go way, way back. Uh, They think around 650 BC. It's a really long time ago, before the Greeks and the Romans and all that time. So we're, we're back in a period when the Western Mediterranean was quite unexplored. And this island, um, Ibiza, they think might have had uh, a sort of, I don't know, a kind of rather sad, depleted tribe um, on it still left over from the Bronze Ages. Or maybe that tribe had already died out 
Um, no one's quite sure. And actually, the book plays with that idea. So we have some people who arrive and uh, and then there's a girl who is left over from the settlers, though from the inhabitants from before. And so a kind of, their two worlds collide. People who arrive on the island who are, I mean, <laughs> it's 650 BC, but they're full of new tech. Um, and the, the girl who's left on the island from before, who's uh, much more savage and tuned in to the island's wildness and emptiness. So we've already set up a thing a little bit where we're talking about people who come to settle on the island and people who've always been here, which is uh, which is something that, that the island is a story that the island keeps on retelling itself in a way. This was the first time it happened. Happens again when uh, the Moors come. It happens again when the Aragonese come. It, there's a sort of repeat uh, refrain in this island where new people come and there's a moment of change. And so this this book is about the first of those moments, really. And I, I kind of wanted to play with that idea so that people who've come to the island, like myself, actually, and me and my family, um, can recognise elements of that arrival in the experience of the first, very first settlers. Um and and also that we can kind of also have a, a, a moment where we can walk out onto the completely deserted, empty beaches and shores of Ibiza before anything was there. I mean, I love what you said there. I mean, you basically just summed up this series about new people coming and, you know, kind of recreating their own very existence here and you know carving out a new life for themselves like you have done like I have done like everybody you know who's not from here does do when they arrive and I think you know there's a real sense of exploration and adventure in that book which really kind of you know comes from somebody who I I feel you know that isn't from here Um, and that really comes across for me. So where did this inspiration you know would you actually kind of say came from because when I started reading it it was obvious you know from the first page that it wasn't just something that came to you overnight. No I mean this book has been a long time in the making um, and it actually it grew out of a different story where uh, I was I was working on a different subject and then I was looking around for, I, I mean, it's it, this is sort of way, way, way back about 10 years ago, I was looking into a story which required an embalmer. Then I was looking at Egypt. Then I was looking at ancient things. Then I came across the Phoenicians who I'd never thought about before. And then I was reading about them. And then I read about them coming across Ibiza. Now, Around that time, I was actually still living back in England, but we'd, we'd begun, Sarah and I had begun our romance with the island already. And so we were planning to come and, and spend some time living here. Um, and actually, at that stage, we thought we were going to go back again. Um, so the idea of then beginning a book about the Phoenicians in Ibiza evolved in my head actually as we moved to Ibiza. The two things happened at the same time. And uh, and it, it wasn't really designed in, in that way. So, so one didn't really affect the other, but they just both happened. And um, so since then, I, I was, I've been working on, on that story. Uh, it's been through quite a lot of different lives, the book. Um, and actually, I'm, I'm really happy with the life that it's chosen in the end with Martin and with Barbary Press um, coming out in Spanish as well. Uh, and being available in all the little local bookshops because 
it feels really nice to be able to give something back a bit to the island. Um, and uh, and and I hope this story is you know is is a, is a worthy offering. Well, I haven't read all of it yet. That's my uh, initial confession at the beginning of this podcast. You know, I've I've definitely dipped in and and, and dug into various chunks and you know very. I don't know, actually, very descriptive and a lot slower and more detailed and yeah, very um, yeah, drama inducing, I would say at points as well. I really enjoyed the pieces that I have read. I'm definitely going to finish that very, very soon. Um, But I feel like, you know, the characters are very, very unique. And um, yeah, I mean, I definitely don't describe the characters as well as Emily Kaufman did on the back of your wonderful book. But, you know, how did you develop those characters or who did you talk to or what were you reading um, to get into this flow to begin to kind of develop those? Oh, that's a really good question. I oh, I, I think um, I, I can definitely look around the cast of characters of, of the first book and I can say, oh, there's two or three people who turn up in in the dad um there's a, a three or four including myself actually who turn up in the sort of 15 year old heroine um and there, there's all of these blends of different uh ways of thinking uh that that i've i suppose just sort of combed through into into a different uh era i mean one of the things i do believe it, or have tried to hang on to in the book is is a feeling that people would have thought um in quite a similar way i think our brains haven't changed much our technology has changed a bit but the the hopes the dreams the fears the way in which we think about the world around us might be surprisingly similar sort of now to the way it was then um and and so i i've i've kind of tried to reflect that because i i think uh I think it's really important when when you're reading stories of this kind that you can find your way straight into the hearts of the people who are who are there for you. So I've kind of tried to keep them um, quite quite open, quite close to the way we would think about, like I said, you know, the the, the experience of coming to the island today. When you say there are several characters that show up in the father, I mean, are you talking about, you know, your own role as a father or, you know, with your own father, perhaps? Or, or who are we who are we talking about here, if you, if you don't mind me asking? Oh, well, um, he's uh, certainly not. Well, no, he's not me. <laughs> he's much better in a boat than I am. Um, and, and with the dearest respect to my own father, he's a lot better in a boat than my father was as well. And I think that was one. <laughs> brilliant uh sort of gap in in competence that my my dad handed down to me but i have done quite i mean i'll just sort of to let you know the father in the in the book is a master mariner uh sailing um across the open seas by night by the stars uh, in the way that the phoenicians were able to in that time with a sort of intuitive grip on water current wind everything um my mate Jim, actually, let's name check, name check Jim, uh, is a wonderful sailor and sailing teacher, and he taught me a lot. Uh, and so I think he's probably in there quite a lot. Uh, my eldest brother, Tom, very similar uh, vibe there, uh, a sort of a, a quiet mariner type who was always happiest in a boat. Um, so, yeah, there's there, those, those are the men who've sort of surrounded that character. Very interesting to, yeah, to know where those little parts and little observations of relationships and 
narrative from from different kind of you know interactions with people come from because I think you know that's obviously for me one of the biggest things that sucked me into the sections that I that I did have the pleasure of reading I think you know I also love the idea that Carly escaped from the evil clutches of her grandmother to explore an adventure with her father and together you know they they find this island which provides them which I assume provides them with safety and a place to call home but also um, a new motley crew as you call it of fellow adventurers now to me this kind of sounds like a beat all over in truth so <laughs> I feel like the people that come here on a massive adventure and they you know they find a new crew um, to play with and explore and obviously get into some scrapes and adventures along the way but you know was any of this based on your own direct experience in part of, of moving to Ibiza and, and starting a new life here? I suppose so. I mean, this is Martin Davis's fantastic phrase that this is the island of black sheep. Um, and and I, I also think, you know, there's this is an island of exiles, really, self-imposed exiles. Um, and also, I think it's really interesting. I have noticed that when you look around, you'll find that you have your own year intake, as it were. So the year for us, 2014, roughly, when we came to the island, um, we're surrounded by friends still who came to the island roughly around then. Um, And then you can discover a whole group of, of, of people who you haven't really met before. They're all friends with each other. They're all lovely. You've never quite met them before. Uh, and it's because they might be 2009ers. You know, and you haven't sort of come across them, you know, and then there's a whole load of sort of 2019ers who, you know, one will meet. So they, I sort of feel that people do arrive with their circle um, and uh, or they discover their circle as they arrive. And in a way, the book is, is, is the same. It was it was a way really of, of saying, um, which is which is kind of true, I think, that um, when we talk about these old settlers the phoenicians in in one big lump they weren't it wasn't really like that it was a huge trading network different nations different tribes different localities different people different languages that were blending and so you would end up with boats literally full of different people um from different areas moving around and uh and the the, the whole certainly of the western mediterranean but the east as well was this incredible melting pot uh, at the time. And and again, you know, Ibiza continues to step up uh, into that role of of welcoming people who are black sheep, exiles, strangers, the lost, um, and and allowing them to find each other and and to enjoy the experience of of finding other people and and also feeling at home with people who've often had a bit of a job finding a home. Why do you think people put themselves in, in self-imposed exile in a place like this? Well, it's very nice. Um, <laughs> <laughs> I don't know. I, I mean, I, so listen, I came to Ibiza because I had a midlife crisis. Uh, I decided I wanted to train as a clown. Um <laughs> No, it's real. Uh, I I went onto the websites. I saw you could do a weekend course in Hoxton, five years at Lecoq in Paris, or three months in Ibiza uh, at the Clowning School here, which was called on its website uh, the Independent Republic of Failure. And so I had to come, and that so that was my that was my hook. Um, and I think everyone's had uh, similar stories. <laughs> 
<laughs> not, not maybe the same. Though some people have definitely had the same one. You, it's amazing how many old clowns you can find on this island when you start looking. Um, so, so that's that's that was my kind of arrival here. Um, and I just think this place. Often, I hear people have kind of passed through, uh, or thought they were passing through, and then they found either that they have to keep on coming back, or that. Whatever they were going to do next seems to be best done here. <laughs> oh, Ben, that was absolute gold. Thank you. <laughs> Who I have met one lady who's a clown on this island, and um, I'm really struggling. I'm racking my brains, but I just cannot remember her name. But was it was it a woman who's running the clown course? Um, at the moment, well, the 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 woman who is still living on the island, Encarna de las Heras, was uh, was teaching at the course uh, when I was uh, doing it. That was actually in two thousand and nine, I think nine and ten. Um, the school itself has moved to Menorca now, um, but it's it's still going strong as far as I know. And I met someone the other last year who'd just come back from there, and yeah, just from time to time you meet someone and. Uh, uh, and you can say, ah, oh, right, you were. At, when were you at Eric's then? Because it was Eric de Bont was the clown who was uh, who was running the place. And did you ever take the course? I mean, what was the the upshot of all of that? Oh, I did it. My God, I did. That was three extraordinary months of my life. Um, I mean, just beautiful months. Really, very, very memorable. Amazing people. Lovely people from uh, again all over the world, mainly Europe, but all over the world actually. And uh, we spent three months weeping discovering ourselves not liking ourselves trying to help each other not knowing what we were doing and eventually finding our way slowly towards something that that felt really fresh and new I mean I'd done a lot of performing in my life before that period um, I've always sort of done writing and performing with theatre stuff and 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 musical stuff as well um, but the the clowning really uh, blew me away and I, I kind of I never <laughs> people say and did you do anything with this <laughs> <laughs> um my my I got I got a little certificate um and I did not become a children's entertainer it's not that kind of clowning um uh, and I sort of say yeah I kind of use it every day just to survive you know the, but what I actually have felt with with it uh was that it, it it taught an enormous reliance on intuition actually to to get through any kind of adversity uh, intuition and open communication and that has been a bit of a, a sort of guiding star for me ever since. How beautiful thank you I think that's so interesting uh, actually and you know I'm glad that you clarified that it was not child's entertainment uh, type of clowning because there's definitely a very extreme distinction between the two I mean I'm imagining more like a Charlie Charlie Chaplin-esque style or Laurel and Hardy or you know one of those more um, antiquated very British kind of institutions of clowning but I, I might be wrong but I love the idea that you say you know this kind of brings your vulnerability and this kind of idea that you have to show yourself and really dig deep into a part of you that you know you don't really probably get to do in in a lot of other walks of life no absolutely i mean it was true that there were what there were 26 of us on on the course for three months um there was uh, a coffee break and a lunch break uh, and an afternoon break and one of us would be in floods of tears at every single one of those breaks on every single one of those days for three months 
So there was a melancholy around it, as well as triumph and and laughter uh, and freedom and uh, and and the combination of all of those is kind of what makes up clown. I mean, you know, before we move on back to the book, like what what was the desire to become a clown? Like what was the catalyst for that? You know, actual booking of of said course. Ah, well, that that was going to see. Uh, there's a very famous clown show called Slava's Snow Show, which tours around. Um, and I saw it in in Plymouth, of all places, actually. And uh, it just it just enchanted me. And I was at a bit of a, a dead end in my life and a little bit of a sort of um, drifting, drifting badly. And uh, and this really appealed to me. And, and I thought, OK, I, I can I can just change all of the energy that's surrounding me at the moment by seizing on this. At that stage, I had no idea how right I was. <laughs> it it completely transformed every single part of my life in every single way. So I ended up uh, with a different person, with a new family, in a new home, in a new country, doing a different thing. And so it did. It did. Um, yeah. It it did create a bridge for me from from one part of my life, which which I think was the uh, you know the dusk was settling on that on that time in my life and uh, and so I, I managed to escape from that and find sort of everything very fresh uh, on this amazingly fresh island when you say I mean it's interesting and I'm really grateful that we're going down this line of inquiry purely because at the beginning of the last episode which was a hundred episodes or the episode before last um you know I did talk about this this thing that happened to me after my 40th birthday when I you know I lost my massive business that I'd created and really really worked slaved I would say uh, to create and um I lost the person that I I felt that I was in love with at that point. I felt like, you know, it was kind of, you know, when I published it, I was a bit like, oh, God, why did I have to put that on the 100th episode again? So everyone's going to listen to it again four years later. But, you know, there's no harm. There's no shame in talking about these moments that, 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 you know, push us forward into resetting ourselves, essentially. And I I think it's really interesting what you said there about having a midlife crisis, which, you know, is this classic British. It's not just a British thing. It's definitely, you know, something that people talk about, but they never really kind of explain like what that really means for them and you say you were drifting but would you would you would you tell us like what you know what what were you drifting in at the time well i was drifting um hmm yeah i was i was living in a, a very beautiful village in south devon in a lovely house uh um on on a river uh and uh it had been the, the whole of that period of my life was designed to be a sort of opening up into uh, a relationship and a family and 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 doing the next thing the relationship fell apart the family didn't turn up um so there i was in this uh perfect i was i was on the perfect stage set for a family life on my own um and (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> watching the tides rise and fall uh, and the levels of the wine bottles fall and fall and so I thought actually no this isn't this isn't the right place or or the right um the right time for me and and actually I I, I shook up a, a number of different things I I spent more time in London I got away from the, the very beautiful South Devon but it, it does have a kind of sort of elegiac quality that draws you down um and yeah, and combined with that in Ibiza and London, and suddenly stuff started to come alive for me again. Um, and and it really wasn't that much. Uh, no, it was. It was barely any time after that actually that we we moved out here full time. Um, 
which again, as, as I say, I, we thought it was for a year. What did we know? Um, and eight years later, we're still here. Very, very interesting um, to hear that. And I think I want to talk about more about this idea of isolation and desolation that you talk about in the book. Um, but I think that's a very intriguing story because, you know, you're also talking about the wine bottles being empty. I mean, I know that you um, are not drinking right now. And I wonder whether this level of productivity and this book and this creativity that you've kind of like talked about, you know, inspiring you um, more recently, is that, you know, do you think that's anything to do with the fact that you've kind of given up drinking? Oh, without a doubt. Although well, I actually made that decision when we moved. I thought uh, his, I mean, it was part of the the sort of the reinvention in a way. It was me. I thought, well, this is actually an opportunity. And although Ibiza has a reputation of the wild party island, actually, there's so much going on here that's uh, so uh, sort of sensory and rich. And there's the... You know, if you think of the the beaches, the sea, uh, the forests, uh, all of these places where you can be kind of overwhelmed by stimulation in a way. I thought, actually, this, we could give it a go, you know, <laughs> see what happened. And to be honest, the sense of freedom was immediate and the sense of delight was lasting. Um, and I, yeah, I've I've really never regretted the choice of of making that decision as I came here yeah I think that's um novel and um you know (laughs) 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 well coming here doesn't come without its extra trials and tribulations like you know there's a magical quality that this island encapsulates that's unescapable from like it's one of those places that will suck you in and often spit you out dry and I think you know you either learn to navigate those stormy waters which obviously helps if you're not you know getting uh involved in in various activities but it, it definitely is a place that will absolutely call you out on your your stuff I think and um, trying to find a way through all of that and remain stable and steady and in situ is is definitely a skill yeah I know that's that's for sure I also have found um, that working on a longer piece of work like like a novel um, the trouble with being in a kind of party lifestyle is that you're forever in this terrible oscillation between thinking that what you've just written is either brilliant or absolutely awful neither of which are true um so so then you're always in you're always reacting sort of thinking oh my god i'm going to win the booker prize oh no i can never you know i'm i can't write another word i'm awful and uh and it's it's so much energy gets wasted and actually if you don't go into that sort of oscillating like triumph despair triumph despair you've got a chance of making it through the week, you know, and then looking back and thinking, okay, that bit's a bit rubbish, but I can make it better. And this bit's okay for now. And and you're just a bit more level. And that, because books take a long time to write. They, they just, um, or at least mine do, dear Lord, they wriggle around and they won't, they won't lie down for years. Literally, it feels, because um, I'm working on the second one at, at the moment. And, And here I am, I find this morning I was working on, you know, the second chapter of it again for the 13th draft, probably, of that. And you've just got to breathe deeply and trust and not lose your nerve. And for that, yeah, you need need to have quite a steady hand and quite uh, a lot of patience and self-forgiveness, I think, is also important. 
I think that's interesting because you're a first time writer. I think that's, this is your first book. And I mean, how long did it take you to work out that, you know, you go through this process of, OK, this is the best thing I've, you know, will ever have written. I'm going to get the Booker Prize to God, what a load of old crap that was. I mean, how how long of a pause do you take before you go back and revisit what you've just created? There was a period of time, um, I guess, around about five years ago where I thought I'd, I'd been working on the first book for ages. It had gone through the process of being worked up by an agent in London and sent out to publishers there and knocked back. And at that point, I thought, well, sod this, I'll do something else. And I did start working on something else, which kind of ticked on for a while. And then I thought, no, no, we're not done yet. So I then went back to the book, the Ibiza book, and and that was when I started uh, talking to Martin about it, and it went through another um, it went through another set of revisions, and a, a, another sort of life began for it. When I came back to it, I I could see that uh, that it had a a real quality, and I actually gave up at that point on uh, all the kind of fantasy of of. Um, prize winning and great publication in, and uh, multi-million uh, Netflix deals um, although all of that would be very welcome um, uh, and, and I thought actually no this is a story that, that exists in this time and space on this island and here I have an opportunity to make it work just here in the way that I want it to and uh, the joy of, uh, of of being able to complete it here in this way is that I I meet a lot of people uh, more and more every day who are reading it, which is really nice. And that response that I'm getting is, uh, it seems pretty positive. But the main thing is that it's just it's just a sort of it's a human echo back from all that time spent with the book. So now the thing it's out there, it belongs uh, to all its readers now more than it does to me which is which is a, a bit of a relief. I mean, there's a real passion uh, that exists in this world, particularly, I guess, in Europe, for people that just love Ibiza. They love it. You know, when I wasn't living here, I used to dream about it, you know, and think about being here all the time. And I'd come back once, twice, even thrice per year. Um, and it was, a, it was a real object of my fascination. You know, I was really addicted to being here and the feeling I had of being here. So I think to create a book, which there are not that many, particularly fiction about the island, I mean, I think there's going to be a real appetite for this book. And it's very exciting for particularly people that live here to think that, oh my God, there's actually a book that exists, you know, even if it's fictitious about, you know, places and, and, and wonderful ways that you can even elaborate on the themes of the things that you dream about of happening here because they're not even real, but they are slightly real because they're connected to history. So I think, you know, for that, for me, felt like the number one reason why I did attend the launch and bought myself a copy, um, which I'm actually, yeah, we're going to talk about that at the end of the show, but I'm going to give away that copy once I finish with it at the end um, of this podcast. And I think, you know, that was clear from the fact that also there was you couldn't even get into the launch of your book it was like swamped with people it was people spilling onto the streets and it was one in one out it was like your name's not down you're not coming in there's not there's no room at the inn and you even, even your own wife couldn't get in which i found highly entertaining i ended up drinking carver or champagne on the streets of uh, ibiza town of vara del rey with her because she couldn't get into her own husband's book launch which shows you that i think this book's going to be a hit well, yes. Oh, it also shows you that she's got very good priorities. Um, and <laughs> no, it was it was it was a really lovely event. I I loved it. It was um, it was exciting uh, and 
and uh, my god i signed i signed a lot of copies in spanish that day which was um which was a, which was a really interesting experience trying to just that's just spanish names are, are very long they're very long what can i say <laughs> compound names but um i had a really lovely time and it was amazing how many people turned up and uh, i think we've got uh, martin uh, to thank for that and and uh, naos the distributor as well they did an amazing job of uh, rattling you know all of their literary circles um so yeah i i for me i'm i'm just over the moon uh, at the moment i have to say i i'm still floating around on cloud nine about the fact that it's out and it's in all the little shops um that's something that gives me pleasure from the moment i open my eyes in the morning to when i close them at night and so it you know rightly rightly should and i think you know having spent time with martin in his library and you know his collection of uh, uh, wonderful amazing books in his library um you know he's a, he's a picky he's a picky old chap and you know there's 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 a lot to be said for the fact that this has actually happened i mean this is you know it's nothing short of a miracle as also in the framework of time you know if you even moved here in 2014 and you started to work on it then that's you know it's less than a decade ago that this is this is all unfolded and it went to press when there was no paper to be had before christmas the paper thing was awesome um that we had been <laughs> yeah no it, it has been uh it's been a uh it was a busy period throughout the end of last year getting it ready for the the christmas uh christmas launch which we kind of set our hearts on um and uh, and i think i did rush martin a bit towards the end but he was very very gracious about it um and we did get it all together and then <laughs> send it off to these printers and discover that there was a shortage of paper um was someone else and then <laughs> uh and then it actually only arrived on the island on the morning of the launch um these boxes sort of rolled off the ferry at 6 a.m um <laughs> and made their way to the right warehouse which was well, that was cutting it quite fine uh, i thought after uh, after so many years but it's a good it's a good ibiza tale there, there's always a good ibiza tale in there somewhere i mean you know one of the when I, I'd just like to clarify that me calling Martin picky, you know, he's, I meant choosy. He's very selective. And, you know, he has a very small repertoire of books that he's actually published, meaning the fact that he chose to publish yours is actually quite something because um, he has got a, a beautiful array of, um, of publications. But I was, um, yeah, I was really happy for you that he, he has actually, and it looks absolutely gorgeous with the illustrations and um, also the artwork. Can you just tell us who is the artwork by? So the cover um, is, uh, it's a picture by uh, an amazing artist called Dominique Sanson, who's lived on the island forever and ever and ever. Um, and uh, he's done many different types of work, but he does a, a, a great line in uh, oil paintings that are from actually that period of time, Carthaginian, Punic, Ibiza. Um, and so Martin and I looked through this amazing back catalogue of his and, and found the image uh, that has worked really well on, on, on that. We also commissioned him to do the little uh, little pencil drawings inside, which are very, very pretty. Um, so he did those bits. And then uh, Joanna Ruby, who I think we you know very well, um, we approached her to do the maps um, because she's got a very distinctive uh, style that uh, lends itself to, to a kind of ancientness. 
bearing in mind that the maps are an anachronism. There weren't maps. So uh, it's, a, it's a big cheat, that bit. So we, we kind of thought that the since they are a bit of a cheat, but we did want to have a sort of visual guide for, for readers as to what was where and, and, and how that part of the world looked, where the cities were, but also how the little settlement that was laid out um, on the island itself. We thought that we would get Joanna to make it look as if it might be coming from the right era, but we know that it's a bit of a cheat. I mean, I love the maps. They definitely add a certain something at the beginning of the book and sort of set that scene for, you know, this is a historic book that's set, obviously, in the past. And I really liked, yeah, it felt like a, yeah, like a real kind of adventure just to kind of ha- have a look at those and kind of allow them to take take you further on the journey. I think, you know, when you, the other book I, I've always wanted to read about Ibiza and I've never had the pleasure was the one that Emily Kaufman wrote, who was also speaking at your um, your wonderful, very busy and full launch party that no one, no one could get into. <laughs> I was fascinated, uh, you know, to sort of hear um, what, what Emily, what Emily said, because obviously, you know, she is someone that that, you know, you, one respects as, a, as an author that's written a very successful book about Ibiza. Oh, Emily was doing an amazing riff on uh, the, the 7th century BC uh, in fluent uh, Spanish, obviously. Um, I was kind of hanging on to her coattails there as she sort of blazed across the sky. <laughs> but it is, it is this period of time where you've got sort of things happening in, in loads of different parts of the world, a kind of enlightenment. It's a... It's a it's a moment when a whole load of different things were changing um, globally, actually, not just in the Mediterranean. I think that was her point. She was, she was sort of picking out this this rather fascinating hinge point of of history, um, into which all of these stories will fall. But um, Emily's Emily's a, an amazingly. Uh, I have to tell you my story about Emily, which is that I was invited um, to Martin Davis's birthday party before we even started doing all of this book stuff. So I went along and I ended up sitting um, beside this lovely woman who politely asked me what I did. And I was explaining to her all about the fact that I was writing uh, this very important historical novel about uh, the dawn of Ibiza. And she was so patient with me before she told me that she was (laughs) Emily Kaufman. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> the author of the best-selling history guide to Ibiza. Um, and, and then she gave me some very gentle advice about um, about making sure that I managed to put all my ideas, the honey, she said, get the honey to go into a really good pot. And I sort of thought, well, I think that's the nicest way of being told to improve my research that I've ever been administered. <laughs> Get your honey in the pot, baby. <laughs> okay. Um, well, I, yeah, I've never had the pleasure, and I was actually so excited to meet her. Um, finally, I was like, you know, I was there. You saw me sitting next door in a cafe because I was so ridiculously early. I didn't want to be too early and look very, very uncool. Um, but of course, by the time I actually did arrive there and uh, had a little stroll around the Christmas market, couldn't get in. Couldn't get in. Unbelievable. Roadblock o'clock at your book launch, which is very, 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 very exciting. And um, yeah, I think a, a testament to, you know, the success of the book, which I think is going to be massive. 
Um, and I think, you know, as you said, there's so many people already reading this book. And I think, you know, there aren't that many books about Ibiza. So it's, it's a wonderful thing. I think the first time I ever met you was on uh, a farm visit uh, with a lady called Jess, who's the founder of Herbal Hay. And she's also a brand new farmer and she's in the early stages of her discovery in the island. Um, and she's also someone who's heavily supported Ibiza's land bank project. And I feel there's so much, and rightly so, homage paid to the land in this book from the little bits of knowledge shared about the way to set up the camp in the book to the little observations on how to preserve the soil stop the rain carrying away the goodness um you know just these little things and there's a distinct sense in the writing that you are a very outdoorsy man a man who's got his hands on the land and that you've camped hiked and combed a lot of Ibiza um, and got to grips with many of its traditions or ask google Uh, but by all accounts it does feel like you've gone pretty deep into that feeling of connection which I think is something that really happens and um, from living on an island like this one and and you know to have met you in that scenario in the first instance it does feel like you got deep into the honeypot <laughs> yes absolutely no i everywhere uh, i've lived i've been uh intrigued by what you can grow um that one is down to my dad and he can have that one um and uh and here it's it's been the same i've also uh had the opportunity to do quite a lot of traveling and um talking with groups based in east africa um working on sustainable farming there so i've kind of i've looked a little bit into uh difficult difficult soils arid conditions all that kind of stuff and so i i'm i'm fascinated always by what you can make work in in different environments um and i think it's amazing what people are doing on this island at the moment there seems to be a real uh renaissance of uh of of thinking in terms of bringing up old traditions uh binding in new knowledge um trying out things uh both old and new together and and that's that's always proved to be the way um the best way i think of getting soil uh to respond so i i'm i'm intrigued by uh by what by what one can do i'm always trying new things uh where we live up in san juan with mixed success but you know i'm getting there i i i stole a whole pocket full of uh, nitrogen fixing seeds from Jess's fields and planted those as instructed in November they've all come up nicely so I'll bulk the seed from that and then I want to sow those around my citrus trees and see if that will sort of fix a bit of nitrogen for those. Good Lord, Ben, this sounds like a scientific experiment. I'm loving it. I'd, I'd love to see the state of those trees or the, the, the lemons that come <laughs> off them in, in future years. I mean, you know, what's the biggest lesson that you feel like you've learned from the land since you lived in Ibiza? Ooh, um, patience, watch, uh, observe it. Uh, I, I think what you can find out from what your land is doing uh is is the most important thing there's very little that it will learn from you so uh all you can do is learn from it beautiful i think that's definitely i mean i don't have any land sadly where i lived but you know to have gotten to know jess and through my other podcast series with the gang of witches um 
you know, that's something that I've been kind of learning much more about recently. And I think, you know, everyone's kind of wanted to get their hands dirty after the last two years of, uh, you know, being slightly incarcerated. And I think, yeah, it's a it's a beautiful thing. There are so many lessons to be learned. I feel like this could be a good time to perhaps ask you to do us the honour of uh, reading a small or short passage of your um, own fine selection that maybe perhaps highlights that connection to the land or the island um, specifically, because that was, you know, really something that I, I loved um, when I was browsing through some some chunks this morning. Right. Well, listen, there's a little bit um, which I'm now looking for desperately <laughs> <laughs> where they've planted their seed in the soil um, uh, the first crop and uh, and and so they, they broke a field, they cut the trees they've planted uh, a, a grain that uh, one of the one of the the motley crew has sort of traded from a, a farmer on the southern coast of Crete on the way over, um, and uh, and we've got our heroine whose whose job it is to to water in some of this seed because of course they've had to sow it rather late they've arrived late in the season. Uh, so she bent down at the end of the first row and pushed her finger into the wet soil. At first she found nothing, so she ran her finger along the groove until something small appeared looked like a clot of earth she raised it on her fingernail it was a seed grain blackened and rotten she squeezed it and a grey pus oozed out over her thumb she'd killed no plant there Callie pushed her finger back down to find its neighbour the next seed was rotten too she went along the row then paced down to the bottom of the field to try there it was the same the crop had failed in the wet heat of the ground Ooh, I want to read more. I want to hear more. You've got such a ridiculously gorgeous voice, by the way. Um, you basically have to make an audiobook of this at some point. Um, I think that would be a really lovely thing. I can really imagine listening if I didn't have the time to, to actually have that in my ears instead of actually um, sitting down and reading it because we're all so bloody lazy these days. Um, would be wonderful. So if you're up for that, let me know. Um, I think... Um, you know, I like the idea of the fact that the book is also centred around the goddess, which is kind of a, an Ibiza theme with the land, um, with the whole island obsessed with Tanit and, you know, her mighty fertility powers amongst others. You know, was that was that an inspiration or any kind of something, something that you maybe thought about? Oh, definitely. Um, but I've gone to and fro on this one because uh, the thing with Tanit and this island is it's quite a complicated relationship and certainly in terms of the um the history uh the first settlers that came to this island came here and they would have been living here and doing whatever they were doing for a good long time before the tannic cult possibly reached here um the tannic cult sort of spread a little bit later so but 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 it has to be remembered that the Tanit cult grew a goddess from a goddess from a goddess from a goddess. These ancient mothers go back to the dawn of time, um, and so you're you, there. You're kind of spinning threads together in a way um, of of an ancient goddess of of new ideas for a goddess uh, of. Um, also, the way in which we look at Tanit now, um, and the images that we have for her, uh, and uh, and and the way in which that's then 
translated into the marketing of clubs on Ibiza. And it's a it's a fantastic sort of, uh, you know, mix uh, of of different uh well, there, there are different, there are different uh, cultures clashing all over the place, different strands of history, different periods of time. Um, so, so for me, I, I kind of feel that uh, what I, what the books carry, because I'm hoping there will be three books, um, and what I hope they will carry through is a sense of what a goddess has been meaning here um, since the time that that has been. A belief, I suppose, uh, and that that would have been changing throughout, uh, and and in fact, you know, the 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 blossoming of Tanit is a slightly later thing, but it it grows from, well, from hot wet soil. So, <laughs> uh, and 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 so there is there is a strong sense of uh, of of a goddess, a slightly harsher goddess, actually, that that uh, that exists in in the period of time uh, where the book is set. Um, but that that uh, that power softens as it reaches the island, um, which is something that has been noted in in all of um, in all of the the movements of deities to and into Ibiza. They tend to get slightly transformed, like all of us, when they come here. I have to agree there, and um, that kind of leads me on to my next question, which is, you know, being a yogi, I, I kind of, you know, the name of your protagonist or one of the protagonists, Kali, obviously not spelt the same way, but you know, the the, the ancient Ind- Indian deity and goddess of destruction, Kali, Kali. So I kind of, I, I was slightly distracted at points by that possibility that that also could have played a small part in 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 her naming and her creation. She's uh, she is something of um, an iconoclast. She she does fight back against uh, against those accepted um, religious entities. Um, so for me, that was her kind of um, sort of semi-destructive quality, although it's an attractive one. Uh, I didn't. I mean, the, the, it is a it's a Phoenician name. What can I say? Um, they all are. Uh, I've discovered this amazing PhD tract by a German student written in about I don't know nineteen thirty three or something, um, with all of the uh, Phoenician names on all of the tombstones uh, across the Mediterranean, listed with their translations. Um, uh, and actually, Kali is the accepted one. Um, and that's what the name means. Um, so yeah, that's that's where that one came from. You did go deep into that honey pot. That's that's very impressive. I can't let go of that now. I'm afraid, but <laughs> I just feel like yeah, that's impressive that you dug out a document from 1933. I'm uh, you know why did you choose the Phoenician times after all the ones that you've mentioned at the beginning of our conversation as a as a focus? You know what 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 was it that drew you to that specific era? It was partly it was partly the boats. Um, I loved looking at a culture that was uh, able to, that was the first culture in this part of the world that was able to sail out of sight of land um, and to sail at night. They kind of, uh, it was kind of like inventing the internet, really. Um, They, suddenly they could go anywhere um, and they could begin to piece together the world around them in a way that, just hadn't been done before and the way in which they did it as well i i i quite like uh that the the sort of the phoenician culture was one that was 
very peaceful. I mean, it was based on trade. It wasn't based on um, colonial uh, empire building. It it was based on. I mean, you know, these weren't all um, <laughs> beautiful saints and 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 worthy people. I'm sure. And there was a lot of. Uh, robbery and uh, murder going on I know but uh, but there was something up there's something about the intention of that that culture which is actually quite honest and quite open-hearted and uh, and I, I did love the idea of being able to explore the Mediterranean before the Greeks and the Romans arrive and just mess everything up just a little bit of uh, subjective experience there. Um, and yeah, I mean, yeah, it totally, I didn't know that much about the Phoenicians before I read the book or started to read the, some of the books. So I feel like I'm very much looking forward to going a little bit deeper into all of the storytelling and, and the narrative around that time. There was one line that I really loved amongst many, many others, but that really resonated and it being January and all. And that was, she wondered, is the quiet of the island beginning to creep between their hopes? Um, And because I think, you know, maybe less so in the last few years, but when I first arrived 10 years ago, there was a real distinct sense of, in wintertime, of this kind of desolation. Um, You know, everyone went off on their travels in January and February, and, you know, they only started to trickle back in March and April. And at that time, you know, at this time of year even, when the island is quieter and when people have... um, you know, to do a lot more of what they've done a lot of recently, which is meet themselves um, and, you know, with varying outcomes. Um, I feel like, you know, this is something that you kind of have to experience, that feeling of being cut off. Um, I think when you're a resident here in the winter and it's, you know, I love that line because it just it kind of shone a light, I think, into that dark hole that some people are currently in, not just because of the fact that it's January and Ibiza and it's a little bit quieter and things are closed, but, you know, just at this moment in time, I think people are facing some some uh, some battles more than ever before perhaps yeah i think that's true um i i i know that feeling for sure um i think this is a challenging place to live despite all its enormous charms and beauties uh i think there's um there's a part of this island which reflects oneself back at oneself quite clearly and that can be very confrontational and actually for a lot of the time there's enough going on that you don't have to look you can you can you can play on the beaches you can go to parties you can see people you can have fun you can sleep in the sun uh, and then there's a moment there's a still moment isn't there between and often it's it's just this moment in January where uh, it's bright it's cold it's still it's quiet and the reflection is very hard-edged um, and that that can be really confrontational, and uh, I think I think I I've learned to love those moments actually, um, and and again that's where it, yes this word comes back for me the sort of self forgiveness that is so important of just trying to get through life at all, um, and and so that when you see a rather challenging reflection of yourself in in the sort of the the still sharp horizon um you've just got to be able to go it's okay uh yeah i just forgive all that and carry on and keep trying and see where we get to next and then the spring flowers come out and it's all all right 
And that right there is why this podcast is called The Reset Rebel, because I think you have to be slightly rebellious to reside here and and stay in the game. Um, That's number one. But I also think you have to reset yourself on a daily basis, like to, you know, to really kind of stay focused. And and the fact that you managed to write a book on this island, Ben, is nothing short of a miracle and requires a hell of a lot of that word that you mentioned earlier, which is patience. Um, you know, first and foremost, to, to reinvent and rewrite and, you know, restructure this book, God knows how many times that you have done in the various forms that it's had. And I think, you know, also discipline to really place, you know, I know a lot of people that come here to write, but, you know, a lot of those people don't quite achieve because there's just a lot of distraction here and there's a lot of noise unless you obviously take yourself up to the top of a mountain and, you know, get yourself a little cabin um, with no phone and no internet. But it, it, it is hard to stay on track here. And I think, you know, absolute hats off uh, for what you've achieved with this book. I'm very much forward, looking forward to, to diving into the rest of it. And I can't believe you've got two more books planned as well. So hopefully we'll be having this conversation again in the not too distant future for book number two. But, you know, I really would, um, I hope you don't mind, like, to offer up my copy to somebody who would um, would like to, to to write in to just the good news please at gmail.com um, Ben is going to write in it for us which is very kind of him and um, I will definitely send that out to somebody who's listened to this and feels like they would um, yeah like me to send a copy to them and perhaps needs a little distraction right now in their life and a little reset so Ben thank you so much for I've taken up more than an hour of your time so I really appreciate you joining me today here on the Reset Rebel podcast Thank you so much. It's been a joy. Thank you. And good luck with um, getting back down to it for uh, yeah the second part of the series. Thank you so much. We will be back next week. Reset Rebel. It's the Reset Rebel. It's the Reset Rebel. It's the Reset Rebel. Coming to you every day.